Thank you for joining us. I am going to invite you in just a moment to turn to our passage of study. We have been looking at distinguishing marks of a healthy church. We started off by a Bible study in the pastoral epistles in perusing through what Paul instructs Timothy and Titus about a healthy ministry being um, foundation stone number one, healthy doctrine, sound doctrine. Then we followed that up with expository preaching where we take the Bible and we, we uh, uh, expose people to the Word, we extract what God means by what He has said, and we exhort them to do that Word, that is expository preaching. And then uh, followed up by um, another lesson, what was it, two weeks ago? And today we find ourselves looking at number four of a healthy church, comprehending conversion. And so let me, uh, there's a two-sided hander out here, and uh, thank you, sir. Let us consider how a healthy church is distinguished by a biblical understanding of conversion. How many of you have heard of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith? Anybody? One of you is. Now, I understand that old language can be a bit tough, but press through as I share with you article number eight of this statement, which reads, we believe that repentance and faith are sacred duties and also inseparable graces wrought in our souls by the regenerating Spirit of God, whereby being deeply convinced of our guilt, danger, and helplessness, and of the way of salvation by Christ, we turn to God with unfeigned contrition, confession, and supplication for mercy. And at the same time, heartily receiving the Lord Jesus as our prophet, priest, and king, and relying on Him alone as the only and all-sufficient Savior. Thus reads Article 8 of the New Hampshire Confession of Faith. The statement begins with a biblical call to repentance and faith. Doing just what Jesus did in His gospel ministry, in the beginning of His ministry, in Mark 1 and verse 15, if you wanted to note that reference down, Mark 1.15, as He went preaching, He says, repent and believe the good news. So if you, in a concise, succinct way, wanted to know what was Jesus' life and ministry about, what was His, what was, uh, his preaching ministry about, repent and believe the good news. Conversion is repentance and faith. What does saving faith look like? It is turning to God from our sin, receiving Christ and relying on Him alone as an all-sufficient Savior. 
And in a day and age in which the message of the church has been convoluted and compromised, we need to think clearly and biblically about what our message is. It is a message about conversion. When you look all throughout the New Testament, New Testament pictures of sinners who have left their sin and received Christ and rely on Christ, who's one of the first that, you, that, that we are confronted with in the first gospel account? When Jesus is calling followers after Himself, we are introduced to a man by the name of Levi, the tax collector who left his trade. We're also introduced in the New Testament to the woman at the well and the centurion soldier and Peter and James and John. How about Saul, the persecutor of the church, the persecutor of Christians? Saul turned Paul, the apostle, to the Gentiles. There's a long list, but all of them turn trust, and follow Christ. That is conversion. Why are we uh, going back to repeat a foundational truth which many of us have reflected upon time and time again? Because there's confusion. I still get... Uh, ministry and missionary update letters. I, I know many of you get them. You put them on your, uh, some of you put them on your refrigerator. Some of you put them with your prayer list so that we're reminded of uh, what to be rejoicing in together and what to be praying for. But uh, in some of the uh, letters I, I still get, uh, oftentimes in many missionary letters, uh, depends on what flavor of missionary we're talking about, they're given statistics or figures of how many people became Christians at any given evangelistic meeting. And it's not just missionary letters, but other uh, evangelistic uh, ministries that say that uh, at thus and such an event that we hosted, we had this many people come to Christ. And what has constantly been my question is, well, how do you know? If, if we can't see the heart we can only look at the outer man. How do we know if the Spirit of God just breathed new life into a dead soul? In the same vein, that, that's what uh, urged me several months ago to write uh, another article. Uh, I, I made some more copies to put out in the foyer. I have decided to follow Jesus, dot, 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 maybe. And because I've, uh, through the years, wrestled through, uh, especially when I was a youth pastor, we've got so many people that uh, attend Sunday school and youth group, and they're, they're uh, good religious people raised in Christian homes that uh, as soon as they're outside mom and dad's roof, no longer in the church, because there's no transaction of the gospel of Jesus Christ that actually took place. Becoming a follower of Jesus is not a matter of reciting a creed or saying a prayer or a conversation. It's not attending some class or being on some journey. It is an active turning 
with our whole lives from our rule to God's. From self-justification to Christ's justification. From self-rule to God's rule. From idol worship to God worship. In other words, it's an absolute surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. As we think about saving faith, biblical conversion, one of the resources uh, through the years that I've come to really appreciate that reflects upon the real deal was Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections. If you have that on the shelf at home, let me encourage you to blow the dust off and pull it down sometime and start reading through it. Just six years after the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards wrote this treatise to explain how true religious conversion to Christianity occurs. Edwards describes how emotion and intellect both play a role, but converting grace is what causes Christians to awaken to see that forgiveness is available to all who have faith that Jesus' sacrifice atones for all sins. And that salvation is not possible through believers' imperfect good works. They're simply an evidence of faith. Only Christ's sacrifice becomes their true hope. Edwards describes the importance of testing new faith and discerning whether it's legitimate, following what Paul says to examine ourselves to see if we be in the faith. And Peter, who says to be diligent to make your calling and election sure. And in the, that book, Religious Affections, he lays out 12 tests of true conversion, including ways of measuring allegedly fruitful works. He basically concludes that the fruit of the Spirit are the religious affections. It's not a matter just of, of outward behavior modification or becoming a more moral person, but it is, in fact, love being the chief affection and all the other fruit or Christian virtues flows out of love. He said, quote, love is the chief of the affections and it, as it were, the fountain of them. He further says, for it was not by men's having the gifts of the Spirit, referring to spiritual gifts, but by their having the virtues of the Spirit that they are called spiritual. That is how you can distinguish carnal men from spiritual men. Carnal men do not produce the fruit of the Spirit, but spiritual men do. So it was with Christ. He said, all the virtues of the Lamb of God, His humility, patience, meekness, submission, obedience, love, and compassion are exhibited to our view in a manner the most tending to move our affections of any that can be imagined. So we want to think clearly about conversion, about biblical saving faith. 1 John was written for the express purpose that you might know that you know Him. John the Apostle wrote his gospel account. And at the end of his gospel account, he said, I've written these things that you might... What? What's he say at the end of his gospel account? I've written these things that you might... Anybody remember? That you might believe. That you might believe. 
So at the very end of his gospel account, he gives you his proposition or his thesis statement of what his, why he presents his gospel account of the life of Jesus. Written these things that you might believe upon the name of the Son of God and have life in His name. His first epistle that he writes is that you might know that you know Him. Though there is a fuller list that will, uh, I know we had some out in the foyer, I'll make sure that there's a, there's a new supply, there's, there's uh, several of these religious affections that uh, Edwards goes to, but we want to look at just a couple of these that John addresses in his first epistle. But right before we do so, I don't want to assume too much. I want to take every opportunity afforded us to clarify what we say that we believe about salvation, and we don't just take it based on a profession. What does James do with uh, professions of, of faith in his, his letter? In uh, no less than five times in James chapter 2, James reiterates his thesis that passive faith is not efficacious faith. What good, he says, if you have faith but do not have works? And he gives this frontal attack on empty profession of those whose hope is on dormant faith. You say, yeah, I'm a, I believe. One commentator puts it this way, he said, it must be noted that the discussion is about a person who only asserts that he has faith. This person has no real faith since his faith does not find expression in deeds. The author, James, does not take issue with faith itself, but with a superficial conception of it which permits faith to be only a formal concession. He desires to point out that a Christianity of mere words does not lead to salvation. Another commentator, uh, Cranfield, observes the clue to the understanding of the section here in James 2 is the fact very often ignored that in verse 14 the author has not said if a man have faith, but if a man say that he has faith. This fact should be allowed to control our interpretation of the whole paragraph. The burden of this section is not that we are saved through faith plus works, but that we are saved through genuine as opposed to counterfeit faith, a real faith. One more thought is to, to resonate as we, as we go into uh, John's evaluation about saving faith. Think about the difference between Rome and the Reformation. A Roman Catholic view of salvation is faith plus works equals justification. Whereas a Reformation perspective, a Protestant view, is that faith equals justification which manifests itself in works. Neither view, the Roman Catholic nor the Reformed view, eliminates works. 
The Protestant view eliminates human merit. It recognizes that through works are the evidence or fruit of true faith. They add or contribute nothing to the meritorious basis of our redemption. The current debate over lordship salvation must be careful to protect two borders, says R.C. Sproul. He says, on the one hand, it is important to stress that true faith yields true fruit. And on the other hand, it is vital to stress that the only merit that saves us is the merit of Christ received by faith alone, period. Faith alone. So that I don't assume anything as we go into 1 John. Let's remember, when we say that we, we're introducing this subject of conversion, God's miraculous work in us, we are saying that it is made possible through Christ alone, no possibility of salvation apart from Him. Verse after verse, whether it be John or Acts Apart from Christ, there is nothing. If we understand conversion as something that we have done apart from what God has first done in us, then we misunderstand conversion. We would second of all state that as, as we look from God's perspective, salvation is accomplished by God choosing some people for salvation. Not everyone's going to be saved. Some people will die and go to heaven. Other people will die and go to hell. And when we say that, you know, from, that, that God saves some, we're not saying that there is no human element. We're just, our starting place is God. God intervened. Yes, it includes our action. But before we can respond in faith and obedience, God's got to give us life. Ephesians 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. Romans 3, that we are slaves, we're enslaved to our sins. So we must have our hearts replaced, our minds transformed, and our spirits given life. We can't do any of that. He must make us new creations. We need a new birth. We need God to convert us. A lot of people say, yeah, I'm a Christian. I've been converted. Just like uh, uh, the 19th century preacher Spurgeon told this story when, when he was walking down the London street. When a drunken man approached him and leaned on a lamppost saying, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. To which Spurgeon responded, you must be one of mine because you're certainly not one of the Lord's. There must be God invading a life, breathing new life into their dead souls so that they can respond to Him. So it's made possible through Christ alone. From God's perspective, we're saying that that, uh, salvation takes place as God invades a life. Thirdly, our assumption from man's perspective is that salvation is accomplished by repenting of sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith. 
Now, so, so from man's perspective, which we're going to unpack a little bit more in a moment, what are we saying here? We're saying that if somebody has truly been born again of the Spirit of God, it will, this new life will evidence itself in fruit. Their lives will be giving evidence of change, putting off the old and putting on the new, waging a war against sin even as they continue to stumble towards holiness. Jesus said in John 15, I've appointed you to bear fruit. 2 Peter 1, 5-11 talks about fruitful growth. Philippians 1, 6, Paul talks about the seed for growth that is planted within. So enough of this, uh, enough of this bunk about people saying, well, the only reason why this person looks so carnal and there is no evidence of life in them is because the church failed to disciple them. No. That doesn't wash. Yes, somebody can be stunted in their growth and there can be fruit that's withering on the vine not as, not as plenty as it ought to be if the church fails in her mission to make active participants, active disciples. But the seed of gospel growth has already been planted. God's accomplished that. He will complete what He has started. He'll complete it. Yet, you know, when I separate from God's perspective and from man's perspective, they're not meant to be separated. Don't think of man producing, oh, grow, 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 and the more he works hard at it, ah, another piece of fruit. Yeah, finally. We can't think of it apart from God's working by His Spirit in the lives of His own. We spent three or four weeks uh, recently, what, when was it, this summer, looking at... Uh, Applied sanctification in our lives. So, a fourth assumption as we go into this study, we're saying that it's accomplished by God's grace alone. When there is fruitfulness, as there is maturity, as there are acts of righteousness, we, give God, we boast in God for that. We take credit for all our sin and God gets credit for all that He accomplishes in His own beloved Son through His Spirit working in His Word in our lives. Those are four basic assumptions we're saying when we're talking about salvation. So you profess to know Christ. Question then. Do you love other Christians? Because a life of repentance works to honor Christ. It's not just a matter of, of knowledge. Our doing shows that we know. Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said, Knowledge without repentance will be but a torch to guide men to hell. There are a lot of theologians, a lot of biblically astute people that are going to wake up in eternity out of God's presence, conscious in torment in hell. They know a lot of orthodox doctrine, but that does not save them. Take your Bibles, if you will. Turn with me as we think through what God produces in the lives of His children so that we can have a biblically accurate picture of conversion. What manifests itself that it is indeed a work of God? 1 John chapter number 3 
Look at number 10, verse number 10. And, and, and again, we are just uh, zeroing in on a couple of evidences of which the New Testament is replete in. We could spend time for weeks going through John or James or Galatians. 1 John chapter 3 and verse number 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Stop for a moment before we continue in the verse. Notice what he's saying here. We can see a distinction between two categories of people on planet earth. Either you are a child of God or you're a child of the devil. When I was, uh, began discipling a guy years ago because he professed to know Christ, we started looking at something like this. And he said, I just have a hard time with saying that he had an unbelie- uh, what he thought was an unbelieving wife. And he said, I, I just can't believe that uh, she's a child of the devil. I said, don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Every person that is born into this world is born apart from God as children of the devil. Unless they've had the new birth into the family of God where they became a child of God. So John says there's a distinction to be made here. He said it is obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Notice how that uh, with that uh, with that verse we could go back to the previous chapter, where he says it in a different way. Notice what he says in First John two and verse number nine. He says, "The one who says he is in the light, this one makes a profession of faith that he's a child of God, yet hates his brother, is in darkness until now." The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So, let's stop right here for just a second or two, or a minute or two. Loving fellow Christians comes naturally to believers. It is God-taught, according to 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now, John and the Apostle Paul, they're, they're not saying that, you are a, that you've never blown it. He's not saying that it's a perfect love, but it is innate. This seed of the gospel that's been planted in your heart, if you've responded in saving faith, it's God-taught. Is a natural inclination. It's instinctive. It's implicit and inherent within our new nature. It's poured in our hearts, according to Romans 5.5. It's basic to our Christian life that we have the capacity to fervently love one another from the heart, 1 Peter 1.22. It's a love that goes beyond feeling to encompass dutiful responsibility, sacrificial service, and sensitive concern. So here's the test. John asks you, do you characteristically love other believers? 
If you claim to be a Christian but have no love in your heart for those in the church, or you've got no track record of meeting needs, then the Apostle John says this to you. He says, you're in the dark in spite of your claim to be in the light. Love is a test of divine life. We were studying that just recently in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus summarizes all of God's requirement in the law. He says everything can be boiled down to love for God and love for others. The love test that John narrows down here in regards to those who say that they've come into the light from the darkness. Love signifies that you've crossed over from darkness to light. This is how he puts it. We, we read uh, 1 John 3.10. What about verses 14 and 15? He says, we know. So, so here's what we add to our knowledge. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I think I've shared with some of you some stories that I've experienced in so-called church life, which you wouldn't believe unless you experienced it and you observed it. And, uh, you know, when, when you uh, partake of the Lord's table in, in one particular Baptist church, it was the first Sunday of the month uh, regularly. And uh, as I got more involved in uh, people's lives, I found out that uh, we had a lot more religious hypocrites in the church than we thought. And we'd have people sitting in the exact same pew as each other, partaking of the Lord's table and drinking damnation on their lives through the cup because you'd have people sitting in the pew that, would, that were fighting with each other and don't you ever speak with me so long as we work here at this church together. How can that be? Do you honestly care about other believers or are you cold, uncaring, and indifferent? Do you have a desire to reach out and meet their needs? Those who don't care are spiritually dead, characterized by an ongoing hatred. You know, this love test is a great evangelistic tool. You know, as, as we share the gospel with people as I talk with some of my kids. When you've got uh, a child who is feuding with their brother, manifesting hatred, who's saying, yeah, I asked Jesus in my heart, whatever that means. No, you have, you have not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ because you hate your brother. Now, it's not always manifest in open volcanic hostility but often an utterly self-centered approach to life. People who continually focus on themselves, yet we are told that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Verse 16, we know love by this that He laid down His life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. This is what Jesus taught in uh, the upper room in John chapter 13 when He served and wash the disciples' feet. He says, I've left you an example that you would do as I have done. Do we fall miserably short? Yes, we do. We slump towards holiness. But there is that attempt, that, desire, that innate desire to love others in the family of God 
as His love has been shed abroad in our hearts. You know, I can think of so many applications here of uh, how the world doesn't teach this. doesn't teach what the Bible teaches on, on love. I could uh, pull different uh, psychologized books off my bookshelf. I could give you an example by Menrith Meyer Clinic that I was introduced to years ago. And the title of the book was, Don't Let Jerks Get the Best of You. And in what is sold as a Christian book is anything but Christian. It's poisonous food. I could pull another one off my shelf, and usually, uh, uh, usually any of the heresy in my library, I put the spine on the inside so that you can't read uh, the titles and whatnot, I, but I keep them around because when I, when I accuse somebody of, of veering from the path of truth and righteousness, I like to see it right in pen, right before my own eyes. One of those books, uh, psychology books, is uh, uh, Safe People. And it is man's wisdom, not God's wisdom, on how to build boundaries into your life to protect yourself from being hurt from those wicked people in the family of God. Huh? That ought to sound foreign to you. When you and I have been hurt, we are not, you know, we, we like to hide, wrap our hearts up from harm, but we're not allowed that luxury we're not allowed to, to isolate ourselves and withdraw from fellowship and service. John defined love as making sacrifices for others, perhaps even to the point of martyrdom. So how do you respond to the opportunities you typically have to sacrifice your time and, and your treasures and your talents? Are you happy when you come across a person or a ministry in need and you're able to provide money or, or some, some of your time or, or prayer or some commodity or skill or just a sympathetic ear? How often have you gone to visit somebody in the nursing home or hospital or in their home seeking to be a blessing and you go away being the one that's blessed all because you just wanted to serve? and encourage the downtrodden. How about fellowship in general? Do you look forward to being with fellow Christians and talking with them and sharing with them and discussing the things of God with them and studying the Word with them and praying with them? Do you enjoy taking the resources God has given you and, and apply them to someone John gives us encouragement. He says, if you profess Jesus Christ, you say, I've come to know Him. He said, there are, there are certain tests you can go through to test your profession to see if it is genuine saving faith. One of those he presents to us to have a no-so salvation is the test of love. Praise God for it. One of the, another one that he says to evaluate our profession, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? This is the sin question. And though, though we're going to be 
in chapter 3 again, let's, let's skip back to chapter 1 for just a second. Back in uh, 1 John 1, verse number 8, he says, If we say that we have no sin, we've, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. Stop for a moment. So John helps us understand that uh, sinless perfection is not a scriptural doctrine. When you come to faith in Christ, you have not laid down the battle with sin. The battle has only just begun because now that you've come to Christ, you finally have the resources through the Word of God and the Spirit of God to fight against the sin within. Yes, He has rescued you from the penalty of sin, but every day is going to be a fight to the death. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. Every day is going to be a struggle in uh, uh, exerting power through the Spirit of God and the truth of God over sin. But we are looking forward to the day that we are glorified when we'll be rescued from the very presence of sin and have perfect fellowship with God. We'll know Him as He is. But John says that's not now. (laughs) He says if you say you have no sin, you're deceiving yourself. Verse 9 On the contrast to that, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we've not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. Remember our definition of the church. What is the church? Yes, the church is a community of worshipers, but to say it differently, the church is a community of sanctifying saints who still sin. Sanctifying saints who still sin. Look at chapter 3. John gives this test. Notice what he says. And... Let me draw your attention. I know we've said this before as we've looked at uh, at 1 John. You might title John as the Apostle of Black and White. Would you not? When you're reading his epistles, you don't see any gray areas, do you? It's either this way or that way. God's way or the highway, basically. Either you're this or you're that. You know, down in verse 10, we'd already seen that, uh, that the children of God versus the children of the devil are obvious. But notice with me, 1 John 3, verse 4. He says, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. You must, you must notice that word practice because that is the key to interpreting this passage of Scripture. You know, back in chapter 1, he says, don't say that you don't have any sin, You deceive yourself and you're calling God a liar if you say you don't. And here the issue is practice. Are you practicing sin like you did before you came to Christ? There's no such thing. Verse 5, you know that He appeared in order to take away sins and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. 
No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Stop for a moment and think with me. What John is addressing here, he says, unbroken patterns of sin are characteristic of the unsaved, not of the saved. Sin is a life pattern that is incompatible with salvation. Look at ver- notice verse 5. The purpose of Christ's death was to take away sin, its penalty and its pattern. We are no longer, if, 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 there, if you have new life in Christ, if you're a new creature, no longer perpetual sinners in thought, word, and deed. And because of the abiding presence of Christ, our struggle will decrease as time goes on. It doesn't say that it uh, will disappear. You follow God's way. You pursue Him in faith and obedience to His Word. The struggle gets easier. It doesn't get easy. One commentator Put it this way. He says, let me clarify something here. He says, I frequently receive letters from anguished Christians who doubt their salvation because they can't seem to break a sinful or unwise habit. They most often write in about uh, smoking, overeating, and masturbation. They fear their struggle with such things means they're locked in a pattern of sin. But that's not what John's addressing here. The apostle black and white. John's not saying that the frequent occurrence of one particular sin in a person's life means that that person is lost. Rather, he clarifies his meaning in saying that a true believer cannot practice lawlessness. Verse 4 of what we were just reading. The Greek term used there, onomia, literally means living as if there were no law. Unashamed. No conviction, no guilt. A person who rejects God's authority doesn't care what God thinks about his habits and is obviously not a Christian. That type of person is described in Romans 1 who wants to suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. they got no concerns, no cares. They sit through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God, but their hearts aren't stirred about their sin. But a Christian has a drastically different way of relating to God. They're no longer a slave to sin, but is offering himself or herself as a servant to the Lord. Yes, a true Christian can sin and might do so frequently. Frequently. But sinning frequently is not the same as practicing sin. Not the same. In 1 John We see that a true believer can do the first, but not the second. A true believer struggles in the unredeemed humanness, the flesh, and sinning. They find themselves with Paul in Romans 7, what I want to do, I don't do, and that which I don't want to do, that I end up doing. See, a a habitual practice and pattern of sin in unbrokenness indicates that a rescue has not taken place. 
To claim otherwise is to denigrate Christ by implying his death didn't accomplish what he set out to do, which was destroy the works of the devil, the purpose of his death right here. Born of the Spirit of God, a believer cannot continually sin. You remember being woken up at 5 a.m. in the morning one time. J. Vernon McGee would come on at that time when my alarm went off. And, and uh, he, was, uh, he was talking about this concept. And he said, not like you don't, uh, like a Christian could not commit the act of going out and uh, drinking and carousing at night. But when he wakes up in the morning, he's got to hate himself. What's he mean by that? He said, what he means by that is that I was carried on by my sin and not honoring Christ. And then he confesses and repents and moves on. God's seed produces righteous fruit. Born anew of the Holy Spirit and the seed he plants is a new nature, a new life principle, a new disposition. Born of the Spirit of God, a believer does not continually sin. So as you look at your life, you ask yourself the question, self, am I loving the brethren? John says, as you talk to yourself, as you evaluate your profession, you look at your life, do you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? And as you see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life, that is evidence of holy affections that Edwards referred to. The difference between children of God and the devil, as John says in verse 10, are, are obvious. If you practice righteous, righteousness, you're of God. If you don't, you're not. Plain and simple. If you see victory over sin, which you wouldn't have without Christ, which you wouldn't even desire without Christ. If you see righteous motives, righteous desires, righteous words, righteous deeds, and if you're not all you ought to be, but certainly not what you used to be, you've got eternal life. So enjoy it to the fullest. Assure your heart that you're in Christ. What good is it to have something if you don't know you have it? These tests that the Scriptures give us is not for a true Christian to doubt their salvation, but give them proof. Give them knowledge, an absolute knowingness that they're in Jesus. And to enjoy it to the fullest. If we had time, which we don't, we'd look at that last one, but you've got the slide. Obedience to the Word of God. Chapter 2 and verse 3 could not be clearer. He says, By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. If you want to know whether you're a true Christian, ask yourself whether you obey the commandments of Scripture. That's how Jesus described true disciples when giving His great commission. He asks, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I command you? So I trust that you comprehend better this doctrine, this concept of conversion. This is going to work itself out in a biblically healthy ministry. It will show itself in the sermons that are preached it will show itself in the church's requirements for baptism. Or is the church rushing people into the waters? You know, I, I've served in churches where you could supposedly get saved, baptized, and join the church all in the same day. Just rushing right along. How many people can we add to our roles? Rather than taking heed, lest we validate 
and give the ministry stamp to somebody who hasn't been walked through a believer's baptism class, who hasn't been carefully challenged not to partake of the Lord's table if they don't truly know Him. To go through even a membership class of what they're doing when they join the local church to make sure that they're in Him. Let's think biblically and clearly about conversion, God's intervening grace, and our response to it in lives of gratitude. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank You for Your amazing grace. We thank You that when we were doing similar to what Jonah did in fleeing from Your presence, You found us. You brought us to Yourself. You began that work that Paul states You will continue all the way through to glorification. Lord, help us in not only exhibiting religious affections, but cause us to excel still more as we think more biblically about our lives and our response to Scripture, our response to others, our response to our own sin, that we would be quick to confess it and forsake it and have Your mercy. We'll give You all the praise and glory in the most worthy name, the name of Jesus. Amen.